I would invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me in it to Luke chapter 3 as we do continue on in the Word of God in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 3. And together today we're going to be taking a look at uh, verses 21 through 38. 21 through 38. This, of course, will cover the baptism of Jesus, which uh, Luke actually gives us the smallest account of, smaller even than Mark, which is surprising. Uh, He only devotes two lines to it, but those two lines are full of of important information. Then he goes on to list the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ. The majority of our contemplation today will be on the importance of the baptism of Christ. Why was he baptized? What happened when uh, the heavens are, were opened? What did that signify? And also, we'll, we'll take a look at the uh, genealogy and we'll briefly discuss that. Uh, do pray for me in the next few seconds. There's quite a few names here that are very difficult to pronounce for uh, an English speaker, but um, we will uh, endeavor together to, to get through that list and honor Christ as we do so. But before we do that, let's, let's turn to the Lord our God and let us ask for his help. Sovereign Lord, you know me to be a man with feet of clay. I am not worthy to declare your word to your people. I pray, Lord, that this day, like John, I would simply be your messenger, pointing them to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I pray, O Lord, that you would overcome my deficiencies and shortcomings, that I would say nothing that is out of keeping with your word, but would proclaim the truth about my Lord and Savior, Jesus. May I, O Lord, even as a as an humble vessel in your household, be used uh, to glorify his name. And help us all, O Lord, to have attention today. Lord, uh, even the greatest of sermons will fall uh, and produce no effect if there is no good soil for the seed of the gospel to enter into and to germinate in and grow. We pray, Lord, therefore, that you would prepare our hearts to receive it, that you would, oh Lord, take away all those distractions that so press in at moments like this and help us to fix our attention upon Christ and learn as much as we can from what you have to tell us here. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Luke chapter 3 and verses 21 through 38, I do remind you, this is the word of the Lord. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son, in you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janna, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mathathiah, the son of Semai, or Semai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, the son of Joannes, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmodam, the son of Ur, the son of Jose, the son of Eliezer, the son of Joram, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonah, Jonan, sorry, the son of Eliakim, the son of Malia, the son of Menan, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, 
the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Kainan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kainan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. One of the things I try to do on a yearly basis is to read through the entirety of uh, the Bible. I wish I could say that I completed that task every single year, but often it's the case that I will find myself as October, November, and December are approaching, lamenting the fact that I try to read four books at the same time and that I'm not getting through the Bible uh, as quickly uh, as I ought to in order to finish it. This year, well, the past year, 2023, uh, was unfortunately not unique uh, in that uh, regard. Uh, I found myself falling behind in 2023, so by the time November rolled around, I, I simply made my goal to finish the Old Testament and then finish the New Testament and start the New Testament again in 2024. I remember, though, being in Isaiah, and one of the wonderful things about reading the Bible on a regular basis, and I hope this happens to you as well, is that you will often come upon a verse that you have read before, a section that you read before, but it didn't particularly strike you the last time you went through. You didn't get much out of it. In fact, you may have entirely forgotten that it existed. I came upon one series of verses, though, I was particularly struck by. It was uh, Isaiah the prophet's lament at the end of chapter 63. If you want to, you can turn there. I'm going to be looking uh, at those three three verses at the end of 63, and then uh, the verse at the beginning of 64. In verse 17 of chapter 63 of Isaiah, the prophet laments, he says this, O Lord, why have you made us stray from your ways and hardened our heart for your fear? Return for your servant's sake the tribes of your inheritance. Your holy people have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down your sanctuary. And then this verse, we have become like those of old over whom you never ruled those who were never called by your name. Now, obviously he wrote that in regard to the people of Judah at that particular time. They had gone astray. The people in the northern kingdom had already fallen. They'd been uh, sent into exile by the Assyrians, uh, and they would not be restored. But I thought how verse 19 in particular described what I have often felt like when regarding modern America, when simply listening to the news, we have become like those of old over whom you never ruled, those who were never called by your name. I look at America and I am amazed at what has become of a people who were founded, for the most part, by godly ancestors on such a high principle those ancestors desired to build a city on a hill, to be an example to the rest of the world of what a place that followed the Bible truly looked like. And sometimes now you look at America and you wonder, has anybody even seen a Bible or heard of a Bible in this nation, the way that we act? We are so far from where we once were. 
and how I long as a result for another great awakening. I, I long for the Holy Spirit to come sweeping through this nation as he did in the 18th century and to rekindle the fires of, of true religion and bring about revival and reformation. I desire to see men like, like Edwards and uh, Jonathan Dixon and all of the, the great evangelists of old to be raised up in this nation and indeed throughout the West once again to proclaim the truth I don't even care if there are many in at this point in time, but just men who are willing to proclaim a God who is just, a God who is true, and the Bible as his true word and guide for us. Isaiah, not surprisingly, felt the same way in his day. For in the, the next, the very next verse, Isaiah 64.1, the prophet cries out to God, Oh, that you would uh, rend the heavens, that you would come down, that the mountains might shake at your presence. If we are to be redeemed, if we are to have any hope at all, oh Lord, you have to come down. There's an intervention here that has to happen. We do not have the power or even the willingness or the knowledge at this point to save ourselves. We have gone so far off the beaten path. Now, over 700 years, and this is important to remember, 700 years passed between the heartfelt plea of Isaiah that God would rend the heavens to come down and the verses we've just read in Luke. But I, I want you to see that in the fullness of time, <laughs> on God's timetable, and remember that's 700 years later, the Lord answered, the heavens were opened and God came down. Now, we see that in this particular uh, example of the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the Lord Jesus. But, of course, we see that in particular in the way that Jesus enters into the world. The long-for person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, God comes to dwell amongst his people. As Isaiah said, he was to become Emmanuel, God with us, not God objectively in the heavens far away or some sort of watchmaker who creates things, winds it up and then leaves it, but rather the God who is so intimately involved with his creation that he is willing to descend into it in order to redeem his people. And that he did. He dwelt with them in order that he might redeem us in order that he might, in turn, forever open the heavens to all who believe in him. He was willing to humble himself. He was willing to take that infinite stoop. You know, no matter how much you condescend, go to some place where, you know, you feel you are above those people whom you are meeting with and so on. Uh, you know, think about the greatest stoop you could possibly make in this world. And yet that is as nothing compared to what the Lord Jesus did in coming to earth to save us. And then after coming to earth, setting aside the glory that he had enjoyed in eternity with the Father, he then accepted humiliation and death. And why did he do it? He did it in order to open the way for us to enter the very heaven that he left, that we might also dwell eternally with his Father, God the Father. So I hope you will understand how important this moment in time was. In just two verses, 21 and 22 of, of uh, Luke chapter 3 here, Luke summarizes an incredibly important moment in the life of Christ, in the history of redemption. That is the beginning of Christ's public ministry. The time is now right for Jesus to begin the work for which he was born. He had, you remember been subjected to his parents. He had been subject to them. He had done their will. 
He had accomplished those tasks that they set him to. He probably worked as a, uh, as a carpenter with his, his stepfather, Joseph, in Nazareth. Nazareth was about 70 miles away from, from where this event took place. But now Jesus can begin. But before he does begin that public ministry, he has to come to John. He has to be baptized. And we'll talk about why that was necessary, why it was that he was baptized. And that, that is the first question that we need to deal with, the first point, and that is, why does Jesus go to John to be baptized? Remember, John was the one who said, I, I'm not worthy to, one is coming, that is the Messiah, whose sandal strap I'm not worthy to loose. And yet here, the Messiah... Jesus Christ, God incarnate, comes to John, a humble servant, and he asks him to baptize him. So why did he do that? That's the first of three things I want to look at this morning. I, I asked that question, as I said, because it doesn't seem to make sense. We've, uh, not, only, not only is there a disproportion in terms of this is Jesus, and my hand doesn't reach up to infinite height, so I can't portray it. Right? Every analogy falls apart. And then we've got John. And Jesus says to John, baptize me. Okay, so there's that stoop. But also, we know that John's baptism was connected with repentance. In other words, the people who came to John to be baptized did so admitting that they were sinners, admitting that they were in need of salvation if they were coming in truth, and saying that they were truly sorry, genuinely sorry for their sins. And you all know what sin is from the catechism question, of course. You all being trained up in, in that good doctrine from the shorter catechism. So, people, what is sin? sin is Want of conformity unto transgression of the law of God. Does that apply to Christ? No. As the author of the law of God and the keeper in perfection of the law of God, it did not apply to him, him alone. And yet Jesus comes to John to be baptized, the only begotten Son of God, without any stain of original sin, who had been perfectly faithful to all of the law of God and all of its particulars. He comes and asks to be baptized, and John's answer is incredulity. I, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me to be baptized? Now, John, you remember, was a discerning man. And he was not a man-fearer as well. When the supposedly righteous Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him to be baptized, he sees right through them. He knows they are rotten to the core. And he knows that their outward show of righteousness was like what Jesus called later whitewashed tombs. Outside, they're beautiful. You've been to the, the I'm sure you've gone to a cemetery somewhere and you've seen the, the amazing splendor of some of the monuments that were put up. Or, for instance, we can think about the Taj Mahal. But what is the Taj Mahal? It's actually, it's a giant mausoleum, isn't it? It was built simply to house the, the body of, a dead, of the dead. Or, for instance, think about the pyramids in Mexico. There we have Pharaoh and, I'm sorry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. The pyramids in Egypt where we have the body of the pharaoh placed in this monumental structure, an amazing edifice, and yet what is this body but something that is going through the process of corruption? You break open those tombs and you find desiccation and death and decay and corruption. You find something that, is, that shows the fallenness, the death of men, it's something that's wrong. 
something that we can't prettify. And that was the Pharisees. Outwardly, they looked good, but inwardly, their hearts were full of sin. And so the prophet knew that their outward show of righteousness did not spring from a heart that was righteous. He knew that they were clothed only in, in filthy rags, as Isaiah would have put it. So he condemns them for their hypocrisy. You're not coming out in truth. You don't think of yourselves as sinners. That's something that we'll see as we go through Jesus' ministry. He does not think of himself as a sinner. Or rather, we'll see the Pharisee does not think of himself as a sinner. Christ has good reason not to think that he's a sinner, because he wasn't. But Jesus knows also that he must come and fulfill all righteousness in keeping with the commandment of the Father. So he comes to John, and John points out Jesus to his disciples the next day, and he says of him, Behold the Lamb of God. And he knows that Jesus has no sins of his own to repent of, but when Jesus says, Permit it to be so, he knows he's receiving a commandment from on high, and therefore he's willing to do it. Now, I want you to, to take note of how often we uh, put aside discernment, how often we don't act in discernment. We call that which is evil good, perhaps, or we, we overlook it. John, though, was not such a man. He knew that the spiritual and political leaders of the, the Jewish people, as respected as they were, that they were fallen men, that they were in need of salvation. But he looked at this humble Galilean carpenter, a man who was at the very bottom of the social scale, not like the Sadducees who were way up there in the eyes of men. And he said, this man is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the man who is filled with righteousness. Too often we, we are taken in by outward, experience, uh, or outward um, appearances. And we can be fooled by that. Many a minister has not realized that he himself is not regenerate. I, I'm reminded of uh, two of the founders of our particular denomination, the ARP, Ebenezer Erskine and Ralph Erskine. Ebenezer Erskine was a man of, of great intellectual talents, a man who knew mathematics very well, but when he entered into the ministry, he did not know the Lord Jesus Christ, did not truly know him. He knew about him. He preached to what he called bloodless sermons to the people. He said he fixed his eyes on a, on a stone at the far end of the church and preached to that. And he preached a message that he himself, most of the time, didn't even believe. One day, he was sitting in his study, the window was open, and he heard his brother Ralph speaking to his wife in the garden about spiritual things, talking about their experience of salvation, their knowledge of the Lord. And then he knew, I don't know this man they're speaking of. And they were speaking of Christ. And it prompted him to get down on his knees and to ask for salvation. We need to be discerning, not just about others. We need to be discerning about ourselves. We need to look within and say, do I have the thing that I speak of sometimes? Do I have what really makes someone a Christian? Because it's not the, the outer show. It's not, you know, the, the way that we dress up nicely on Sunday. It's not our baptism. It's nothing outside of us. Ultimately, it comes down to the matter of the heart discern for yourselves. And this is especially serious when we talk about coming to the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do. Examine yourselves, says Paul. Are you in the faith? Do you know this one whom John recognized immediately as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? So, knowing that, he's amazed that he's coming to him. Now, 
he says, in essence, how can I, a sinner, baptize you, the sinless one? And if some of the, the blasphemous theological liberal theories about Christ were true, it was at this point that Jesus would have said, <laughs> no, you've got it all wrong. No, no, you don't understand. I'm just a wandering mystic sage. I'm a sinner like you. Don't get all uptight, dude. It's, it's cool. You know, just, uh, you know, consider the lilies and baptize me. It'll be fine. That kind of thing. But Jesus does not do that at all. He says, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You'll find that in Matthew 3.15. In other words, Jesus says, yeah, it's true. It, it seems like this is a reversal of the correct order of things, but this is the way it has to happen in order for righteousness to be fulfilled. And by doing this thing, coming here, Jesus is doing the work of redemption. I want to show you that in three different ways. First, because he's now functioning as a substitute and representative of those whom he came to redeem. He's even now looking forward to Golgotha and his crucifixion. The people who he redeemed are guilty. That's us. Do you realize that? Do you take that seriously? That without Christ, you'd go to hell. That you're guilty of sin. Every Sunday morning, I stand up a sinful man, and then I address sinful men about our need of Christ and how grateful we should be that he's been provided for us. The only hope that we have is found in him. I hope you do take that seriously. There is no other hope. But now in his baptism, what did he do? He inextricably associated himself with his people. And he undergoes this humiliation on their behalf as our representative. Secondly, he did it as what Scripture calls the first fruits. In other words, to set the divine pattern for his spiritual children who would come after him. Paul says, commenting on Christ's resurrection, but each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ sets the pattern and we follow him. He was baptized and we who are his must be baptized as well. And thirdly, and this, I think, actually, believe it or not, is, is the most important reason. This is the moment at which Christ formally embarks upon his work of redemption in which he will take upon himself all the sins of his sheep and he'll suffer in their stead. And Jesus is accepting his mission. He's beginning the walk of the road that's going to take him to Calvary. But it's also his inauguration as our great high priest. Now, one of the things we need to keep in mind that was most high priests did not sacrifice themselves. In fact, they, they never did. But this high priest will. The sacrifice of atonement that he lays down upon the altar will be his own life, his own blood. In Hebrews 4.14, we're reminded, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And note that Jesus is not just a high priest. Jesus is the high priest. And all the high priests that have come before were just shadows of the true priest. They pointed towards him. As James N. Cheney put it, Christ, Jesus is emphatically our great high priest. He is the only real priest that ever was in the world. Aaron's priesthood was typical of his, so that Aaron and his descendants may be called typical priests, and Christ, the real priest. They were types pointing forward to Jesus. Now, there's this wonderful detail, uh, and I, I have to admit, for many years I skipped over it. I didn't consider it. I thought it was just a, you know, a historical note. But there's this wonderful detail that Luke gives us about what Jesus, uh, when he appeared to John. In Luke 3.23, we read, Now Jesus himself began his ministry at about 
How old? 30 years of age. Now, why would he tell us that? Why did Jesus wait that long also? I mean, think about this. At 12 years old, Jesus is teaching teachers in the temple. All right? And yet, he waits a further 18 years before he begins his ministry. Well into his adulthood. So, why did he wait till he was 30? There's a reason for it. Because that was the legal age at which the priests could serve at the temple. The law specified in Numbers 4 that those who served God had to be 30 years and above. A high priest couldn't be younger than that. So Jesus begins his ministry at the first point that he could. Uh, and when the high priest was being prepared to serve, he had to be ceremonially washed with water and also anointed. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus 29. One of the things that we remember is that in the ceremonial law, we see all of these types and shadows that are fulfilled later on, that see their fullness in the New Testament. B.B. Warfield was quite right when he said that the Old Testament was like a room richly furnished, but dimly lit. And in the New Testament, the lights are turned on. So in Exodus 29.1, And this is what you shall do to them to hallow them for ministering to me as priests. Take one young bull and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread, unleavened cakes mixed with oil and unleavened wafers anointed with oil. You shall make them of wheat flour. You shall put them in one basket and bring them in the basket with the bull and the two rams. And Aaron and his sons you shall bring to the door of the tabernacle of meeting and you shall wash them with water. Then you shall take the garments, put the tunic on Aaron and the robe of the ephod, the ephod and the breastplate, and gird him with the intricately woven band of the ephod. You shall put the turban on his head and put the holy crown on the turban, and you shall take the anointing oil, pour it on his head, and anoint him. So we have washing and anointing. It's two of the things that had to happen with the inauguration of a high priest. So at the moment that Jesus is washed by uh, John as the water is poured upon him in the way that priests were ceremonially washed. He is washed and then he is also anointed, but not with the ordinary oil, the symbolic oil. They would pour, they would pour uh, a fine olive oil on their heads, but that olive oil was meant to represent what? The anointing of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't get the type. He doesn't get the symbol he gets the reality that the anointing oil could only symbolize. The oil symbolized the anointing of the Holy Spirit uh, for the office of high priest that God had given to them. But it also calls him out as the anointed one. The, the Hebrew for that, of course, is Messiah or Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is also in the Greek the Christos. Again, another word that means anointed. Christ is not his last name. It's Jesus the anointed. Jesus the Messiah. For instance, uh, this is the moment in which God anoints Jesus for that ministry of redemption, to be our high priest of salvation. And it's even in the right order. First you have the water of cleansing and then the oil of anointing. Now the apostles knew this. And that's why Peter proclaims in Acts chapter 10, 
he, he says this in Acts chapter 10, starting with verse 36. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Now, it wasn't, of course, that Jesus didn't have the Spirit before, and his divine nature was not in need of strengthening, but his human nature was. His human nature, made like ours was, it had to be empowered and strengthened for his ministry. And that ministry was the ministry of reconciliation, the ministry of peace. And with God, how appropriate then it was that he, God the Holy Spirit took the form of a dove, the very symbol of peace, in descending upon him at that point. Second thing I want you to know and look at this morning is what happened when the heavens were opened at the baptism of Christ. We, we read two things. First, God the Holy Spirit assumed the bodily appearance of a dove and descended upon Christ. The second thing, though, is God the Father spoke at that moment. He said, you are my beloved son, in you I am very well pleased. He placed his seal of approval upon Jesus Christ. John had been told that the descent of the Holy Spirit would be the confirmation that the one uh, he, uh, upon whom he descended was the promised Messiah. So this is God saying, yes, it's him, and I am pleased. This is my beloved son whom I promised I would send the blessing to the nations that I spoke about when I was talking to Abraham. And accordingly, we are told in John 1.34, from that time on, John began to openly declare that Jesus was the son of God. No longer is John preaching the imminent revealing of God's Messiah. Now he is preaching God's Messiah is here. His name is Jesus. And we see the great transition occurring at this moment from the Old to the New Testament period. And we also see one of the great indications of the truth of the Trinity being set before us. Here we have God the Father speaking, then God the Son being anointed, and then God the Holy Spirit anointing the Son. All three working to inaugurate that pattern of redemption. So we see three persons in one God all working together. J.C. Rowell puts it very well when he says, Surely may, we may regard this as a public announcement that the work of Christ was the result of the eternal counsels of all the three. It was the whole Trinity, which at the beginning of creation said, Let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, Let us save man. That's such a profound thought. Now, of course, some people have not believed this. They have not believed that Jesus really is very God of very God. Emmanuel, God with us. Jehovah said, Kino, God our righteousness. They've said, no, no, no. He was a, a demigod. He was like God, but not God himself. There's the Jehovah's Witnesses who proclaim that he's Michael the archangel. And incidentally, no angel, no matter how exalted, could save you. He could not stand in your place. He's a very different being. And in the third century, the late third century, there was a presbyter from Alexandria by the name of Arius who began to teach widely within the church that Jesus was not truly God. Uh, he said instead he was the greatest of God's creations, but he was only a creature and that there was no trinity. Men who followed that particular heresy were called Arians. But the Christians, in answering them, used to say, go to the Jordan, O Arian, and you will see the trinity. And so, remember in Matthew, 
and in Luke and in Mark, this is emphasized, the triune nature of the God who spoke and who anointed and who began his work of ministry. God is well-pleased in him. He's always been well-pleased with him. But Jesus has been particularly pleasing in that for 30 years, he has been living a life of perfect obedience to him. Now, you may be saying to yourself, well, what's the big deal with that? I mean, Jesus, he lived a life of obedience to God in Nazareth. He was obedient to his parents. He kept all of his laws. What's the big deal? Well, what the big deal is that he's the only person in history who ever did it. It seems like a simple thing, but each and every one of us, if you can't remember your childhood, some of you are remembering your childhood because you're in the midst of it, but if you can't remember your childhood, let me remind you, you didn't always obey the law of God. You didn't always obey your parents. Even the best of you did not obey your parents. You struggled with the sin in your heart. Jesus did not. With all that in mind, it's fitting then that at this moment, what is Jesus doing? What does Luke tell us Jesus was doing at that moment? He was praying. Did you note that? In fact, as we go through Luke, you will, you will find that whenever we're at a critical point in Jesus' ministry, what is he doing? He is praying. And that too sets a pattern for our lives, doesn't it? If prayer is something that you only reserve for moments where everything has fallen apart, everything you've tried has failed, you've got it backwards. Prayer needs to be what you start with before you begin any great work. Uh, it is not for nothing that James said, you do not have because you do not ask. Ask first. And remember this, all of our ordinances should be accompanied with prayer. That would include, of course, the, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. We should be praying that God would bless them, whether it's our baptism, our Lord's Supper, or someone else taking part in it. We're going to be ordaining someone, setting them apart for the ministry this evening. And what will we be doing? We'll be laying on hands and we will be praying. Because this is not something we can do in our own power. It requires God's power. So Jesus is praying at the moment of the initiation of his ministry. The heavens are open. God the Father answers his son. And uh, those of you who are thinking, man, I, I wish I got a response like that when I prayed. That the, the heavens literally opened and I heard the word of God speaking to me. Do you want to hear the word of God speaking to you? Listen to the Bible. That is the word of God. And it's just as much for you as it was for any Christian. Open it. Pray and then listen for his voice within it. Do you know, I can't, I can't recount how many times it has been the case that I have prayed something and then I have either opened the Bible or I've been listening to the Bible and in a moment what I was praying about is answered. Sometimes it's disconcerting because it's pointing out my sin and how I need to change. But it's always to the point. God does that. He answers his people. Not audibly, as in, you know, speaking from the skies, but speaking through his inerrant and infallible word. Finally, third and final point. Uh, the third of the three things that I want us to look at is the genealogy of Christ that's given in verses 23 through 28. Now, I, I know that for many people, when you hit a genealogy, I hope this is not you, you're like, yes, okay, genealogy's done. Let's go back to the word, and so on. Now, read the genealogies. Read them for, for a reason. 
Uh, I know the names are hard to pronounce, who are these people, and so on, uh, but they're listed for an important reason. If it's in the Bible, it's there for a reason. It really is. The first reason that I can set before you is that Luke wants us to show that in accordance with all the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament, the Messiah is indeed a descendant of King David. He traces him back to David, and then he goes beyond David, tracing him all the way back to Adam, and then who created Adam? God. And that is why later we'll see uh, the blind man calling out to Jesus saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. They knew his genealogy. And there's an amazing testimony, isn't there, to the providence of God in safeguarding his plan of redemption here? God announces that the Messiah will be the descendant of David. And then time after time, we see the devil attempting to terminate the line of David. That's one of the things that you see if you read the Old Testament. Uh, the most notable examples being when the wicked queen Athaliah, worst grandmother in history, killed all of her grandsons in an attempt to ensure that she would reign over Israel in perpetuity for the rest of her life. Uh, they are all wiped out, except for one son, Joash, whom the high priest hid away in the temple until the time came for the uprising that would put the descendant of David back on the throne. And then again, during the time of the exile in Babylon, the descendants of David, they could have been very easily wiped out. But God safeguarded their line and sent back Zerubbabel to the rubble of Jerusalem that he might rebuild it. Now, these end runs of the devil are thwarted at every time. What does that tell us? Believe it or not, in the genealogy, you are given historical evidence for trusting God. God who preserved the bloodline of Jesus according to his promises against the, what the world would call the, the most fatal odds can easily preserve you in the faith, can safeguard you and bring you safe home to heaven. And you can trust also that God's plan which had worked perfectly despite all of the evil that the world, the flesh, and the devil could do up until that point will continue on into history. To use Christ's own words, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. The second reason is because, of course, it shows Christ's descent from Adam. Christ was very God of very God, but he's also truly man as well. He didn't just appear to be man. He was man. He is man. He always will be. He's taken our nature upon himself. And he has this unity with mankind, with you, for the essential work of redemption. The second Adam. He truly is the seed of the woman that's spoken of in Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the serpent. And finally, all the names in the genealogy had something else in common. Good, bad, lowly, high, they are all dead. You cannot read that table without reflecting that someday you will be like them. Someday the fate that befell them will fall, befall you as well. And that's one of the reasons why it's in the Bible, to remind you that it's appointed for men to die once, no matter who they are, king or pauper, they will die. But after this, the judgment. Death, you cannot escape. But Jesus came into the world to ensure that all who believe in him will escape the eternal wrath connected with the judgment. I hope that's you, somebody who has fled to Christ for salvation. God the Father was pleased to voluntarily begin uh, this work after entering into the covenant of redemption. All three members of the, of the triune Godhead before even creating the world, they agreed, we're going to save a peculiar people to ourselves. 
God the Father electing, God the Son redeeming, and then God the Holy Spirit calling all those who were elected by the Father and saved by the Son. Working together to complete that, that redemption. That's the covenant of redemption. Think about this. You were predestined to adoption as sons and daughters of God if you have come to Christ. He was thinking about you just as much as his plans concerned the, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. They concerned your bloodline. All, think about all of those people who have been in being to bring you about but God was thinking about you. Hopefully you have some godly ancestors as well that he was thinking about. But he also ordered things so that you would be redeemed in the fullness of time. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, what a weird series of circumstances God ordained in my life in order to bring me to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I was born into a, a, a family that did not observe the word of God, that did not go to church, didn't do any of those things. First, we're moved to the United States. And then after I'm in the United States, and in particular, let's face it, godless part of the United States, northern New Jersey, I moved down to Virginia. I moved to the edge of the Bible Belt. And I begin to bump into people on a regular basis who know the Lord God and who are preaching his word. What's worse, something that I could avoid in New Jersey, I'm, I'm being hit by Christian radio. Sometimes it's the only thing that comes through. And God used, uh, th there's so many more significant uh, you know, circumstances in my life, but he used all of those things in order to bring me to the point where I was broken, humbled myself, and fled to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I pray that you can trace, either you can trace that out in your life as well, those circumstances looking back, or that the Lord God is bringing you even now, to that point where you realize that through a weird series of circumstances, you were brought to a church in Fayetteville to listen to a guy drone on for much too long about the circumstances of your redemption, your need. You're here today for a reason. This is not chance. It's not coincidence. God is speaking to you. The question is, are you listening? I hope you are. Let's go before him in prayer. God, our gracious Father, we do thank you so much for sending the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, into the world to die for our sins, to make atonement. I pray, Lord, that there's nobody listening to me who has simply allowed these words to bounce off of them. I pray, Lord, that they've been convicted and convinced, Lord, that they need you if they have not yet come to you, and that they have been further assured if they already have come to you, that you who began the great work in them will never let them go. Lord, your grace is beyond our ability to understand, but it is so powerful that you will never let one of those children whom you predestined for salvation to fall away. Oh, Lord, what great comfort there is in that. Now, Lord, continue, complete your work in us. Make us over after the image of Christ and give us work to do to spread the kingdom far and wide.